You hear that? It's not just another sound effect. It's the sound of your life changing. Old phones are out. The Samsung Galaxy Z Flip 3 5G is in. The headlines and your hands. It's statement-making, trend-setting, world-unfolding. Feed your feed with hands-free selfies, group shots, and videos. Flex for your followers with a look that gets looks. And show everyone how to live this life. Get the new Galaxy Z Flip 3 5G at Samsung.com. 5G connection and availability may vary. Check with Carrier. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. children gather around this is who killed Teresa and for today I'd, I'd like to tell a genuine bona fide ghost story that played out in uh, Griffintown Montreal um, uh, Hound of the Baskervilles this is uh, Heathcliff on the Moors kind of uh, stuff the the murder of uh, Mary Gallagher which has has been covered extensively, um, although for the listenership here, pretty positive you, you haven't heard of it. So, uh, and also uh, over the years, uh, a lot of the facts have uh, gotten lost. Uh, it's uh, moved into the uh, realm of myth and folklore. So we're going to go back to the the germ, to the origins, and look at that. But before we do, uh, I should introduce you to the cast of characters, and and basically. There's a bunch of subordinates, but um, you know, coroners and constables. But uh, there, there are essentially five main characters you need to uh, keep in mind as um, uh, we go through this uh, odyssey. Uh, the first is the victim. The victim in the case is Mary Gallagher, um, and then the, the second person is uh, Susan Kennedy. Uh, she sometimes uh, goes by the name of Susan uh, Mears or Susan Mayers. There's uh, and and both of them were uh, prostitutes. They were ladies of the night in Montreal. So our third uh, character is Michael Flanagan, uh, and he's the John in this case. Uh, our fourth character is James Connolly. He is the estranged husband of Mary Gallagher. And then finally, we have Jacob Mears or Myers, who is uh, Susan Kennedy's husband. Our story unfolds in Montreal in uh, 1879. Uh, and uh, to, to play with an open hand, what I'm going to do here is, I, and I'm going to start with the first reporting on this murder, um, and then we're going to go through uh, various uh, articles, primarily from the Montreal Gazette, um, over uh, a century on the, the reporting of this case 
um, and this haunting, you know, which it eventually becomes. And um, uh, one of the things to notice is how over time the uh, story changes. Now, murder um, in the 1800s uh, is, uh, is different from the way we, we conceptualize murder today. If you want, if you want a, an, an image of Montreal in, say, 1879, it was uh, very much like uh, Dickensian uh, uh, London, uh, the, the same thing. You had, uh, you had a, 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 a rich um, class of merchants uh, like the Gilmores, the Molsons, uh, the Redpaths, the Dorchesters, and then you had a police force essentially that was, uh, you know, designed um, after the model of the uh, constabulary uh, force of Robert Peel in England, who was essentially there to protect uh, the merchant class, to protect property, and not necessarily uh, in the interest of protecting uh, citizens' residents. Um, and to a certain degree uh, at that time, you didn't have the, certainly you didn't have the abundance of murders. Um, in fact, I think uh, prior to the murder of Mary Gallagher, there had not been a murder in Montreal for over two years. And the nature of murder, they certainly, um, uh, although there were exceptions, uh, they would have, the, the, the notion of a stranger homicide as we know it today uh, would have been foreign to them. Uh, as I say, there are exceptions, but primarily the types of crimes we're talking about are, um, are certainly crimes of passion, as we'll see in the case of uh, Mary Gallagher. Um, uh, uh, crimes of desperation. So you have mothers, uh, you know, drowning their children or killing their children because they have too many of them and they can't provide for them. And then you have certainly have uh, honor killings. Uh, someone's someone's reputation or honor being challenged and so they they then um you know they fight a duel or something like that in, in fact the one case i'm thinking of that uh, unfolded uh, in the proximity of griffith uh, griffin town uh, and griffin town is um very close to where uh, currently the bell center is in montreal so it's just adjacent to where the montreal canadians play hockey um since we've talked an awful lot about the uh, point saint charles um, if, if you want to get to, to Griffintown from Point Saint-Charles, you have to go west. Uh, you have to cross the Lachine Canal and go a little bit uh, north, right around Highway 112. And that's where you get to Griffintown. And, uh, y you know, um, today Griffintown is, uh, it, it's on a rebound, but it's been a slow rebound uh, basically, at the time of the uh, Expo 67, the Mayor Drapeau decided that that neighborhood, uh, which was primarily consisted of I Irish immigrant uh, residents, was expendable. Uh, so, of course, it was sort of laid to waste in the interest of um, highways uh, uh, and industrialization. Uh, anyone who lives in a big uh, urban area is not uh, unfamiliar to the ideal of, of uh, idea of uh, urban renewal and gentrification, and uh, that's certainly what happened to the neighborhood uh, of Griffintown. Uh, of course, now it's all been, uh, you know, there's revitalization and uh, condominiums, etc. But at that time, it was strictly Irish uh, working class. And, um, you know, the one case I can think of that is interesting, there, there was a... There, 
it was a sort of duel, for, I think it was in 1857, uh, right where Sharon Pryor disappeared, uh, two young strapping gents decided to have it out, so they went up uh, to the railway tracks. It's still there. If, you, if you're on Wellington and you go north, you have to go, um, if you're driving, um, under the railway tracks um, in order to uh, get to... Um, you know, in order to escape Point St. Charles to Montreal. And it was above those railway tracks that these two gents decided to to um, have it out with fisticuffs, and uh, which resulted in, in one of the one of the guys killing the other one. He, he, he beat him to death. Um, so it was that kind of thing that happened, as I say, is, is um, uh, rage murder as we as we currently know it um uh was not as common although i would i would characterize mary gallagher's um murder as a crime of uh, passion june 28th 1879 an atrocious murder the result of a drunken orgy, the victim's head severed from her body, the murderer still at large. Last night at about 11 o'clock, information was received at headquarters of a murder at number 242 William Street, Griffintown. A reporter of the Gazette immediately proceeded to the spot and found the house as is usual in such cases, was besieged by a crowd anxious to obtain a glance at the victim. The reporter forced his way up the stairs where he found an officer holding back a crowd of women. Now I'm sure it's not a sight for you women to see, observed the considerate officer. Deary me, I would not look at it for all the world. I'm not quite sure why we've descended into uh, musical theater all over land, but nevertheless, I'll continue. Before the woman was aware of it, she was in the presence of the murdered woman. The sight was too much for her. With a slight scream, she turned and ran down the stairs, and nothing more was seen of her. The scene of the murder is a three-storied house of dilapidated appearance. It is gradually tumbling to pieces and the stairs and planks of the floor seem to be running away from each other at acute angles. The whole of the furniture in the room would not fetch five cents under the auctioneer's hammer. The parties renting the house are named Jacobs and both the husband and wife are notoriously dissipated characters. The woman is in the habit of conducting herself in the most outrageous manner when drunk, shouting and raving from her bedroom windows. Yesterday, about noon, a disturbance of the usual character took place. The cries and screams, however, attracted no notice, as in the past they have merely been regarded as evidence that a debauch was in progress. Mrs. Peters, about six o'clock in the evening put her head out the window and cried, Murder! several times. Not much importance was attached to the circumstance at first, 
but after some hesitation, a young man decided to go up and see if anything was wrong. Upon arriving at the top of the stairs, he saw lying upon the floor the body of a woman. The head was completely severed from the body and was placed in a bucket close by. In the bucket also was the right hand of the unfortunate woman. The young man at once gave information to the police, who at once took charge of the house. When the Gazette reporter arrived upon the scene, the murdered woman was lying upon her breast. The whole of the neck had been removed from the trunk, and the sight of the jagged wound, extending almost from shoulder to shoulder, was sufficient to have unstrung the strongest nerves. The irregularities of the surface of the wounded part were filled with clotted blood, and the large arteries leading to the head were also clogged with congealed blood. The maimed arm was underneath the body, which was attired in a slovenly-looking, linsey woolsey dress. The dress was deranged, and the legs of the deceased, which were encased in dirty brown stockings, were uncovered. The head presents a ghastly sight. The face is hacked to pieces, evidently with an axe. One gash upon the temple would have been sufficient to have deprived the poor creature of her life. Another gash upon the forehead and others in different parts of the face show that the murderer was drunk and very clumsy in the use of the axe. Owing to the unevenness of the floor, the blood had run for some distance and then collected in a pool. The blood, however, had been wiped up. The contents of the bucket constituted a horrible scene. The mutilated face, the matted gray hair, which showed that the woman must have been advanced in years, the besmeared and wounded hand, sent those who looked at them away shuddering. Before continuing, I should also, I should mention that um, Susan Kennedy, a.k.a. Susan Mears, a.k.a. Susan Myers, was at this early part of the investigation also known as Mrs. Jacobs, owing to the fact that her husband was named Jacob Mears or Myers. When the police entered the house, Mrs. Jacobs was in bed, and although not very drunk, she was not sober. She stated that a man called to see the deceased, whose name, as far as we could learn last night, is Kate Conway alias McCormick, alias Troy. She, Mrs. Jacobs, asked this man for some money, which he gave her. She asked him for the money because her man had been out of work for some time and she did not think there was any harm in it. This, according to her statement, made the deceased jealous. Mrs. Jacobs left them and they were having high words. Before this, the party had drunk three bottles of whiskey, 
and when the altercation was taking place between the murdered woman and her visitor, Mrs. Jacobs went to bed. When she woke up about four o'clock, she went into the next room and found the murdered woman lying in a pool of blood. Being afraid that the blood would go through to the floor beneath, she wiped it up. Then she returned to bed and again slept. When she woke up the second time, she was in a better state to realize the danger of the situation, and she opened the window and screamed for help. As soon as the police arrived, she was taken into custody. Peters cannot be found. His wife says he was afraid that he would be charged with the murder, and consequently he cleared out. Jacobs is the man who, at present, is suspected of having committed the crime. He is not regarded as of sound mind and probably in a drunken quarrel, committed the atrocious deed. The clumsy manner in which the murder was committed proves conclusively that the murderer was drunk. At present, the police are at a loss to discover a motive for the murder. The instrument with which it was committed has not been found. Detective Cullen has the case in hand. Later, Saturday, 2.30 a.m. Further information received shows that Jacobs gave the first alarm. The people did not believe it and took no notice of the man's statement. Jacobs, afraid that he would get into trouble, made himself scarce. About 10 o'clock last night, the neighbors sent a little boy upstairs to see if anything was the matter. He came back and reported that a woman was lying in one of the rooms in a pool of blood. This being confirmed by the neighbor, the police were notified. The woman... Jacobs was at once taken into custody. The police searched for a long time for the axe and about one o'clock found it in the woman's trunk. The woman was then searched. She looked very clean externally but had on a large quantity of clothes. The clothes nearest to her skin were completely saturated with blood. She resisted violently when she discovered that she was to be searched. The family living beneath the prisoner heard a heavy thud and the sound of chopping between 12 noon and 1 o'clock p.m. yesterday, at which time the murder must have been committed. When the prisoner went out to fetch water from a neighbor in the afternoon, she had blood upon her face. She has no abrasion of the skin now. She is evidently the murderess. An inquest will be held at 8 o'clock this morning. So lots going on here, clearly, um, and you can't even keep up with the aliases. 
in fact, um, even the smattering I gave at the beginning of this podcast doesn't do it complete justice. So Mary Gallagher is also known as um, um, Kate Conway, uh, McCormick, and uh, and uh, Suzanne Myers, Mears, Kennedy, Jacobs. And then later we have um, Jacobs, Mr. Jacobs being called uh, Peters. Um, a little difficult to keep track, but essentially what we have here is uh, in this initial iteration is uh, the women come back with a mysterious man who gives uh, Gallagher some money and then disappears. Uh, Susan Kennedy's husband, Jacobs, comes back and um, well, whether he allegedly sees the, the, the corpse and decides to hightail it out of there because um, he doesn't want to be... Um, uh, blamed for the crime or tagged as an accessory to the crime. And, uh, of course, initially all, all focus is, is on the man, on the male. Um, but then, uh, g- given the evidence, um, the blood on, uh, Susan Kennedy's clothing, they quickly zero in that, uh, this, this, uh, this was an altercation between the two prostitutes. And we still have um, the the men in this case uh, at large. So um, the next thing that happens is uh, an inquest the following morning. The inquest uh, lasts for uh, about a week in June. Uh, And and interestingly, the the whole cross-examination, we'll get into this a little bit, is conducted by the coroner. Uh, back then, the coroner had a lot more power than they do today. In fact, they, the coroner continued to have a lot of power right up until uh, the 70s. Uh, we've seen that in the, in the case of Diane Thibault, the whole uh, interrogation of Edmund Turcotte in the Thibault case from, I believe, 70, 73, 74, is conducted by the coroner. Nowadays, the coroner does not um, exercise that degree of power. But they certainly, they certainly did in, in the past. So we're going to continue now with uh, some excerpts of the, the inquest, and we'll, we'll move uh, further beyond that after. A female fiend. The William Street murder. Susan Mayers suspected of the crime. Two more arrests. Internment of the murdered woman. The inquest. Montreal was shocked on Saturday morning by the particulars of one of the most cold-blooded murders with which the criminal annals of the city has been darkened. The particulars of the horrible affair have already appeared in the Gazette, But to briefly recapitulate the details of the outrage, we may say that the murder was committed at number 238 William Street. The house is owned by Mr. James Halford, marble cutter, and is occupied by two tenants. The lower floor is rented by a family named Troy. The upper part was rented by Jacob Myers, employed as a man of all work, by Mr. W. Clendenegg. 
Meyer's wife is a tall, strapping Irish woman, evidently possessing great physical power, led an exceedingly irregular life, and when under the influence of liquor, was exceedingly violent. On the morning of the day of the murder of the deceased, Mrs. Meyer, some men who had visited the women, inaugurated a saturnalia of drunkenness, and before noon the party had discussed three bottles of whiskey. The disposition of the parties after the debauch is a matter regarding which there is considerable doubt. The evidence of Mrs. Mayers and her husband being totally at variance. The Troys, who occupy the room on the ground floor, state that about noon they heard a thud, as the fall of a body and the sound of chopping. They did not, however, pay much attention to this, as outrageous circumstances, fierce quarrels, occurred daily in the house belonging to the mayors. It was, in fact, a low brothel, as shown by the evidence of Myers, where Mrs. Myers and her companions, of whom the deceased was one, entertained their male visitors. The husband, it would appear, openly consented to the traffic in his wife's virtue, and where such a state of morality reigns unchecked, it cannot be expected that there will be a due regard for human life. There is no doubt but that the murder was committed about noon when the chopping occurred, and that the motive for committing the deed was jealousy. The deceased, however, it would appear, had a solid friend from whom Myers obtained some money. This gave rise to the altercation. The men having left them, the women, doubtless, had it out between themselves. Then, overcome by the liquor they had consumed, it is not improbable that Myers went to her room to lie down and that Gallagher lay on the floor in the room in which she met her death. Myers, supposing her to be the murderess, and the evidence is strongly against her, awakening from a drunken stupor, doubtless conceived what she believed to be a brilliant coup d'etat, the murder of her rival. Seeing the small, keen axe glittering in the sun, she grasped it and stole into the next chamber, where finding Gallagher lying wrapped in a drunken repose, she determined upon the deed. From appearances, the first blow would be given upon the temple. This might have aroused the woman to consciousness and have caused her to realize the danger of her position and spring to her feet. Myers, in stature, would tower over her like a giant, and the cut upon the forehead would be the next in order. This would inevitably have knocked the unfortunate woman senseless, and she must have fallen to the floor with the thud heard by the tenants below. Then came the chopping, which was also heard below. A half a dozen hacks about the head satisfied her 
in that direction. Myers, expecting that her victim was dead, most probably reflected upon the most expeditious means of getting rid of the body. She evidently came to the conclusion that chopping it to pieces would answer her purpose best. She would naturally commence with the head. The decapitation completed, she commenced on the arm nearest her and lopped off the hand with a couple of cuts. At this juncture, finding that the blood was meandering about the room in large quantities, and afraid, as she stated on Saturday night in the cells, that it would trickle through to the ceiling below, she left the work of mutilation to wipe up the streaming blood. This sickening task completed, she found that her clothes were saturated with blood. Then, throwing over her reeking garments, several others, and proceeded outside for water. Then a neighbor would have noticed that she had blood upon her face. Returning to the room, she securely fastened the back door, removed the stains of blood from her hands and face, and then retired to bed with her clothes on, as she was found by the police. The husband entered the house once or twice and saw the woman lying murdered. It did not horrify him. He calmly went to a grocery, bought his dinner, and calmly ate it while the headless woman was lying in the next room. Whether he participated in the crime is doubtful, but the evidence is so strong against the woman that there is scarcely the shadow of a doubt that the intention was to get rid of the body by cutting it up is strengthened by the fact that the bucket stood next to the body and had a head and a hand already in it. And beside the bucket was a wash tub, which would have almost held the remainder of the body if properly dissected. Another theory is that the murdered woman and Flanagan met on the wharf. I love how they just all of a sudden drop in Flanagan. I don't think he's even been introduced, but nevertheless, Flanagan is is the John. He's the one who consumed the three bottles of whiskey with the two women. Flanagan met on the wharf and went for the night to a hotel in the vicinity of their rencontre. In the morning, after leaving the hotel, they repaired to Meyer's house, where they commenced drinking whiskey. As the husband of the woman Meyer's only indulged in beer, he cleared out as he saw the whiskey flowing. Subsequently, Flanagan, who used to be acquainted with Mrs. Meyer's, left Gallagher for his old flame. This enraged the other woman, who, doubtless, raised a disturbance, and Mares, enraged at this interference, took the hatchet and inflicted fatal injuries about the head of the unfortunate woman. Flanagan, finding that the woman with whom he had come to house was dead, 
became alarmed and left the house. If this were true, he acted injudiciously in not giving information of the affair to the police. So what what is this? Uh, how how is this level of um, macabre violence so familiar? Well, this is this is straight up Grand Guignol, uh, the theater of Grand Guignol, uh, founded um, almost uh, two decades uh, later from the date of the crimes, the late eighteen um, nineties. By um, by Oscar Metier, uh, Metanier in Paris, um, did these these plays of absolute ultra violence, uh, theater of fear and terror that had plots of jealousy and revenge and uh, and fratricide, insanity. Um, principal writers um, of the police uh, of the pieces being. Um, uh, uh, Andre Delord uh, and um, his associate uh, Alfred Binet. Binet was a psychoanalyst, and many of the plots of the plays were taken directly um, from testaments from his uh, from his patients. Um, chief director of the Grand Guignol being Max uh, Maury. Uh, as a side note, um, one of the great writers in the, in the modern era about the theater of the Grand Guignol is um, Mel Gordon, who has now passed. He passed away last March. Uh, I was actually um, in, in uh, attempting to, uh, to interview uh, 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 Mel Gordon for this podcast uh, last winter. Uh, I tracked him down in um, the San Francisco area where he was teaching, uh, but didn't manage to hook up. But it was my, my every intention to interview Mel Gordon, who has uh, done a great book, several books on Grand Guignol, has translated a lot of the, uh, the plays from French to English as well. But um, you will know the tradition of Grand Guignol. It had certainly its antecedents in, in Greek theater. You know, the irony of a play like uh, Oedipus Rex, who, um, you know, the, the Sphinx says he's, he's destined uh, to murder his father, marry his mother, which uh, ultimately um, uh, plays itself out, uh, gouges his eyes out uh, in disgust and, and, and rage at his fortune. Uh, later, we, we see this whole tradition in the Jacobean playwrights, uh, chief of which is John Webster in the plays of uh, The White Devil, uh, Duchess of Malfi, we see it in Shakespeare. I mean, the, the beheading and, and the washing of the hands is right out of uh, Macbeth. It's Lady Macbeth, right? Out damn, damn spot. Um, it's in Titus Andronicus, uh, all of those plays. And then later, we certainly, we, we certainly recognize um, uh, this behavior in the, in the slasher movies, the Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Halloween uh, etc. Uh, musically, uh, we see Grand Guignol's ghoulish behavior in the um, initially in in the Alice Cooper band. Uh, certainly later in the, the the music and theatrics of someone like uh, Marilyn Manson. You even you even see it to a certain 
extent in Kiss with the kabuki makeup and Gene Simmons spitting blood and fire. This is this is all in this tradition, um, and this very grisly um, murder is uh, is is like one of the forerunners of it's, it's real life. It's it's one of the you know it's. <laughs> It's not too hard to to stretch that Delord and uh, and his associates would have grasped a story like this from the headlines of a newspaper and turned it into a, th- a theatrical evening. To continue, um, so as I said, the. the the, the inquest occurs, uh, and that's the summary of it. We just heard um, late June, early July. Um, and, and initially at this point, they, they suspect uh, Susan uh, Myers Kennedy, but also suspect um, uh, Jacob Myers and certainly, most certainly, Michael Flanagan, the John, as possible accessories to the crime. I'm not going to read the, the whole thing, um, uh, there's various testimonies, but I, I will read an excerpt here. Um, the coroner's interrogation of um, of Jacob Myers. Coroner, there's a trunk in your wife's room. Whose is it? Witness, oh, the trunk. Why, the trunk is my own, sir. My wife hangs up her clothes herself. I keep in it matches, candles, hammers, chisels, etc., have a big axe in the shed, no other. I drink nothing except a glass of beer. <laughs> it's turned into the Cavanaugh <laughs> inquiry. A coroner producing a small meat axe covered with blood and hair attached, brought in by Detective Cullen. Have you ever seen this axe before? Witness, almost with a shriek. Oh, where'd you get that, sir? Come, answer, have you ever seen it before? Oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, I, I saw it in the corner of my room two days ago. And yet you swore just now you had only one axe. Well, my, mine is a coarse axe for chopping wood. I, I have seen that axe twice, a juryman excitedly. Tell the truth, man, tell the truth. Witness, I am telling the truth. Yes, sir, I am. Coroner, who put that axe in the trunk? Witness, well, I, I, I bought it and I put it in the trunk myself. Oh, yes, yes, I, I keep it in the corner. I then put it in the trunk. Oh, oh yes, I put it in uh, the box a couple of days ago. Have you ever taken an oath before? I don't take many oaths, sir. The case moves to trial in the fall of uh, 1879, uh, early October. Uh, I won't read a lot from it, uh, a few excerpts, um, as you'd imagine. They, some of the constables are called in, the coroner's called in to give uh, his observation of what he saw during the autopsy. An architect is brought in to... Uh, uh, testify about the dimensions the exact dimensions of the upper floor of the house the two rooms um but this helen burke is brought in who is uh, um, 
the resident uh, below um, Sarah Kennedy uh, at two four two Williams Street. So she's she's brought in, and uh, she says, uh, "I occupied the lower part of the house. I recognized the prisoner at the bar. She was the wife of Jacob Mayers. I was at home all day on the twenty seventh of June last, the day before also." I earn my living by washing. My family consists of a little boy who lives with me about half past six in the morning. A man and a woman came to the front door and knocked. I looked out the window, but I did not recognize the man. I did not see his face. I recognized the woman, for she was a constant visitor. I refused to open the door, so the woman went round into the yard and got in by the back stairs, and then someone came down the front stairs and let the man in. I did not see anyone going out that day. During the morning, the prisoner kept calling at intervals from the back and front windows, inviting people from the street. About a quarter after 12, I heard a noise of a heavy body falling on the floor, so heavy that some of the plaster fell from the ceiling. This was followed by a heavy chopping, which lasted 10 minutes at least. About two o'clock, I heard the prisoner say out of the back window, I've been looking for revenge and I've got it at last. I was in the backyard hanging out clothes when she said this. About four o'clock in the afternoon, the prisoner came down the stairs and went through the yard, returning with a small can of water. I never had any interview with the prisoner at all. Never quarreled with her. The first information I had of the murder was about nine o'clock at night. Then later, this is a testimony from a Catherine Golden, who was a witness uh, on the street to the goings-on out the windows at uh, uh, the uh, William Street uh, residence. Um, I saw the deceased uh, woman come twice to the window. The prisoner was at the window, and uh, the deceased tried to pull her in telling her to stop calling out on the street. The deceased went away and then came back in a few minutes and again tried to get the prisoner to go back into the house when suddenly the prisoner turned on her and exclaimed, If you don't go away, I'll knock your brains out with an axe. The prisoner interrupting, That the lie may choke you. I never said that. The deceased then went away, and in a few minutes the prisoner went in too. I heard no more talking. Later, there's a testimony from another woman named Catherine McCartsey. She identifies positively the clothing produced as having belonged to the deceased. The hat which the prisoner was now wearing belonged to the deceased. And then... Uh, this Susan Kennedy interjects. She's telling lies. The hat is my own. She is from Kingston. <laughs> the charges against the two men, Michael Flanagan, 
Jacob Mears are as accessories are later dismissed as um and then finally on 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 October 2nd 1879 uh the jury reaches a verdict um at six o'clock, the jury returned into court and declared the prisoner guilty in manner and form as laid in the indictment with a recommendation to the mercy of the court. The prisoner heard the verdict with the same stolid indifference that she had maintained throughout the trial. The only change noticeable being a slight flush upon the cheek as the fatal word guilty was uttered. She at once turned from the dock without any remark or exhibition of feeling. I'll leave it to a, a, a report that came out 20 years later in the Gazette, chronicling uh, the decapitation murder of Mary Gallagher to reveal to you what happened next. A sensational crime. One of the most sensational cases that ever occurred in this district was the murder of Mary Gallagher by Susan Kennedy, who was the terror of the neighbors, the despair of the police, and no officer on the force dare attempt to arrest her unaided, for she would kick, claw, bite, and stab, and it was as much as a man's life was worth to tackle her. The winter of 78-79 she spent in jail, and there made the acquaintance of her victim, Mary Gallagher. They were released on the same day, and meeting Michael Flanagan, they proceeded to celebrate their restoration to liberty by going on a drunk of more than usual large proportions. They kept it up till two o'clock in the morning when all quieted down and the neighbors had a chance to go to sleep Next day, when the woman who lived underneath got up, she noticed what appeared to be blood trickling down from the room above and gave the alarm. The police arrived, burst into Susan's room, and found her and Flanagan quietly asleep in each other's arms. Now that's interesting. There's a new bit. We haven't heard that before. While not three feet from the bed lay the remains of Mary Gallagher, with the head and right arm chopped off and otherwise mutilated, with a fiendish malignity that more than rivaled Jack the Ripper's most brutal butcherings. Susan, when awakened, showed not the slightest remorse for what had been done, and her story of the crime, if brutal and callous, had at least the merit of brevity. All she said was, Oh, that's Mary Gallagher. She tried to take Flanagan away from me, and I cut her up. Uh, again, that's, that's a new piece. We haven't heard that before. She was tried, convicted, and sentenced to be hanged for the murder, but was afterwards reprieved and sent to the penitentiary for life. She paid the penalty of her misspent life by passing into the great unknown. The most curious circumstance in connection with the case was that of Flanagan, who was tried as an accomplice, was acquitted on Susan's evidence, and said that he was asleep when the murder was committed and did not know anything about it. He obtained employment as a bargeman on the canal, but on the very day and hour originally set for Susan's execution, he fell between two barges into the canal and was drowned.
a judgment from heaven, said the religious. A singular coincidence, said the ungodly. So, so yes, and, and um, Susan Kennedy didn't exactly uh, fade into a, uh, oblivion. She uh, apparently served 16 years and was released. And that last bit apparently is true about Flanagan. He, he worked uh, the barges on the Lachine canals. And um, so we say uh, initially, initially uh, Kennedy was sentenced to be, be hung, um, but uh, the judge showed mercy and later uh, changed that to a sentence in, in prison. Um, and, and on the day of the hanging, uh, uh, Flanagan, who's working on a barge in the, on the Lachine Canal, apparently it was February, it's quite cold, he uh, loses his footing, he falls into the canal, and uh, he freezes to death. Um, so ends the sad tale of uh, Mary Gallagher. I don't know at what point um, a murder story crosses over into the realm of lore and, and myth. I, I only know that they do. We're, we're getting close to that with my sister's case as we approach the 40th anniversary. Um, and I suspect it's probably after the immediate generation passes after anyone who touched or was touched by the event uh, is no longer with us, that there's, there's a distance and an ability to then talk about these matters um, with a degree of objectification. Uh, and certainly in my, it's, it's already starting in Teresa's case. I think I noticed there's a there's on YouTube a, a program by a group of ghost hunters or ghost guild, a, a group that um, take up Teresa's case. They go to Compton, to the staircase where she was allegedly last seen, and they take their devices, Ghostbusters stuff, I don't know what the stuff is, and try to contact her there. They try to contact her uh, down in the valley where the body was found to no, no avail. But th this is, a, I think, a natural occurrence. In the case of Mary Gallagher, uh, the story is forgotten for um, almost a century. And then suddenly, um, in September 16th, 1990s, in, uh, 1990, uh, a journalist with the Gazette named Alan uh, Hustak takes it up um, in an article called um, Victim's Ghost is Busy Searching for Her Head. I'll, I'll read a short excerpt. If you're in the vicinity of William and Murray Streets on June 26th next year and see the apparition of a young woman prowling the vacant lot on the southeast corner, ignore it. It's only the ghost of Mary Gallagher looking for her head. 
It has been said she comes back regularly every seven years since she lost it in 1879. The last time anyone actually reported seeing what they thought was Gallagher was in 1928, shortly before the Griffin Town neighborhood was raised to make way for the O'Keefe breweries. If she's a consistent ghost, the area should be haunted once again in 1991 as Gallagher tries to retrieve her head for the 15th time since her murder. I, I have no idea where this business came up that she would uh, reappear uh, every seven years, but apparently it is, is woven in the fabric of um, Montreal ghost stories. And there's, there's, there's actually several of them. The, the haunting of the Red Path Mansion, um, Red Path, a wealthy family from the turn of the century, uh, the haunting of the, uh, I believe, uh, Sham Radio Studios, this kind of things, and and this this affair, this phenomenon with uh, Mary Mary Gallagher. Um, but nevertheless, if the lore is right, uh, she's due to haunt us again. Um, this coming June um, 2019 would be again the, the, the seventh reoccurrence. Uh, Alan Hustack goes on uh, in June 2005. He publishes a book, The Ghost of Griffintown, uh, the true story of the murder of Mary Gallagher. Um, a local priest takes it up, uh, a pastor, excuse me. Um, January 20th, 1991, um, he speaks of uh, his uh, dedication to the mystery and his intention uh, of taking a group uh, of his parishioners um, uh, to this site I think, during that year. Um, a ghostly night, parish awaits return of headless Mary Gallagher. This is from uh, June 27th, 1991, so the, the day after that, that occurred. This has been Who Killed Teresa. In March 2017, uh, Patrick Legeny, I may not be pronouncing that right, Legeny, uh, published a very in-depth article for Vice News on the Mary Gallagher uh, case. Uh, I, I haven't used it um, uh, well, I've used it for research, but I'll post all of that uh, on the website, uh, giving it proper credit. It's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a very in-depth, uh, um, well worth the read piece. Give you some additional details on uh, the murder. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please give us a uh, five-star rating on. Uh, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you may uh, you may uh, in, enjoy your podcast pleasure. You can follow us on social media. I'm at Justice Guy on Twitter. 
That's at J-U-S-T-U-S-G-U-Y. And there's also a podcast proper handle at Teresa Allure, at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. Follow us on Facebook. There's a Facebook page called Who Killed Teresa? The podcast, um, the benefit of social media, uh, it has its drawbacks, but in this particular instance, is uh, you get visuals and behind-the-scenes stuff, um, supplementary, uh, supplementary materials to the broadcast. Uh, again, there's a website, as I said. Uh, you find information. There's some, there's a few photos, but I'll post some photos that give the character and flavor of Montreal in the late 1800s. That's at TeresaLore.com. That's um, www.T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E.com. Follow us on uh, um, YouTube. There's a YouTube channel where I post um, uh, films, movies, things that interest me. uh, But primarily there's uh, there's, uh, news um, footage of the Teresa Lohr case, primarily the W5 uh, one-hour feature on the, the murders uh, of Teresa Lohr, Louise Cameron, Manon Dubay. That is all I have for this uh, weekend. Again, uh, I'm your host, John Allure. This is Who Killed Teresa? And have yourselves a great, great afternoon. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.